All right, so regarding this, this is a great segue for what we are talking about in this class. We've been going through biblical economics because we want to build a society that is in line with God's word. All of life, according to all that Christ has said. That includes government and that includes economics, statism, humanism, other religions, and all their various nicknames. They have a view of, of economics. They, they have an understanding of what is just. I want to help everyone at Christ Church to determine what is just, what is equitable, um, according to the Bible, so that you're not tossed to and fro by every narrative of the television and every narrative of, you know, your Christian friend who just, you know, took philosophy 101 at UL. Right. I, want, I want us to be able to stand strong on what the Bible has to say in the area of economics, because that's, that's what everybody's fighting about right now. That's what everyone's voting about right now. We need to be equipped. And so just as a little review, the Bible is our worldview textbook for every area of life. Not every Christian agrees with this, but those Christians who disagree with this will be um, slowly eroded into the humanistic philosophies of our age. They will be assimilated into the world. We have to hold this firm. The Bible is our worldview textbook for all of life, for sociology, psychology, right? for economics, for civil government, for the family, the church, the state, for everything. Now, does that mean that the Bible speaks exhaustively about every subject? No. It provides the foundation and it provides the guardrails. That's my little pithy way of saying it provides the foundation of solid rock, and it provides the guardrails. If you are on the solid rock of the Bible, and you are within the guardrails of the Bible, you can innovate, you can discover, you can explore. Um, however, if you are off the foundation of the Bible, and not within the guardrails of the Bible, everything that you do and discover and say is eventually going to topple with the slightest of breeze. All right? Does that make sense? Um, Pastor Scott, is that a good way of putting it, you think? The relationship between special revelation and natural revelation and how we innovate. So we can study math on the foundation of the scriptures and within the guardrails of the scriptures. And within that, we can discover calculus. See that? And in fact, Christians on the foundation of the Bible, within the guardrails of the Bible, discovered calculus. Innovation, technology, exploration, dominion over all of creation. But our world now has shifted off the foundation of the Bible, right? and now they have discovered that 2 plus 2 equals 5. You see what happens. When you leave the foundations of truth, you lose any touch with reality. So that's what we've been talking about. The Bible is our worldview textbook. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for What's that word? Every good work. That's right. All right. I've already said all that. <clears throat> so talking about economics, this is what we've covered so far. I missed a few classes, so I want to review. The Bible lays the foundation and lays the guardrails for government, for the civil authorities. And one of the things that it teaches is that government should be limited. Self-government is limited. We call that self-control. The family government is limited. The father is not unilaterally allowed to do everything and anything he wants. The church is limited. And so too is the civil magistrate, the civil authorities, to be limited. Limited to what? Limited to the authority of Christ? 
limited to the ownership of God over all things, limited to the law of God, limited. Amen? All right. Um, I would also add that the government is limited to the expressed powers that is given it by God in the Bible. The idea of expressed powers in the Constitution comes from biblical Christianity and the concept that the civil government is to be limited. Divine right of kings, it means what? Do you all know that, Pastor Joe, history buff? Divine right of kings. Rex Lex, the, the king is law. Well, Christians came along and said, no, 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 no. Right? The, the king is not law. God's law is law. The Bible is law. Right? God is law. The king must be in submission. So we have these two opposing worldviews throughout all of space and time. God is God or man is God. And what we're saying is the Bible lays the framework, the foundation and the guardrails for self-control, government limitations. That's what we've been talking about. And that extends to the area of economics. The government is to be limited in its approach and its effects on your money and on the market and on economics. We talked about private property as a biblical concept, uh, beginning in the Garden of Eden and going on throughout. Is private property ultimate? No, because God is the true owner. And what are we? We are stewards. We are managers. We foster the land, so to speak, for our short life, and then we pass it down to our heirs, and then they are responsible to do the same. So we aren't ultimately the owners. God is the owner, and we are responsible to own it, to exercise dominion over it, to bring out the best of it, to turn a profit for the kingdom of God according to God's commandments. So we talked about that. We talked about the blessings of wealth. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy before and after the trial. Wealth is one of the promises of God for people who live right. Charles, Charles Wesley, or John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist um, movement. Y'all know, y'all are familiar with that. He had a very simple motto, and if I, I can't remember it word for word, but it was basically like, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. A pithy little statement laying out the Christian's responsibility with their money. And History teaches us that the Methodist movement began as a movement among the poor, 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 poor. And that biblical framework for personal finances lifted thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people out of poverty with frugality, with generosity, charity. The Bible can do this. God can do this through his blessings for us. We talked about the economic sins of envy and partiality. And so... All of that to say what we're getting in today is that considering the government is limited to the express powers given to it in the Bible and in our country in the Constitution, the government is limited by Christ's authority and Christ's ownership over all things. Considering the government is forbidden from seizing property, why is the government forbidden from seizing property? Review question. Real quick answer. Private property. Thou shalt not steal. Who in the Bible steals property? Satan does, yes. But which humans steal property? Name some examples. Saul, king, government. Ahab, Ahab king, government. Any others? Solomon, Rehoboam, Nebuchadnezzar. Right. You would be hard-pressed to find someone like systemically stealing 
that didn't have the sword of the government in the Bible, right? So, considering the government is forbidden from seizing property, and the government is forbidden from showing partiality, we went through all of this. Partiality is and can be an economic sin. We are not to show favor to whom? To anyone. To the poor or to the rich. We are to be just and impartial with all. The Bible teaches that clearly, right? Because of these two things, we deduce, or the natural consequence of these things, is that we have the foundations of a, quote, free market. The market, all right? And Pastor Scott and Pastor Joe and I talk about these things often, so y'all help me fill in the gaps at any point. But we have the foundational principles for a free economy, free transactions. If you work and you earn income, that income belongs to you and you are free under God, not totally free. This is not libertarianism or, or licentiousness. Um, you are free under God to spend how you will, to save, to spend, to give as you wish. Right? That's the foundations of what we think of as free market. Right? Now, I, wanna, I, I want to specify this, and Nick, this is your field of study specifically, so I expect you to jump in here if, if you need to, but we're not totally free. Limited, limited government, self-government, limited. Everything's under the authority of God. So not total freedom, right? And this is not the invisible hand of the free market, uh, which secular conservative humanistic scholars would teach, that you just let the market go, total freedom, and it just kind of, the invisible hand, or, you know, the freedom of the market. You know, Nick, you want to expound on that a little bit? You're good? That's good? All right. <clears throat> No, of course, I don't believe at all in any invisible hands. If you, when you see something, you're like the invisible hand. I'm going to say, no, 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 that's Jesus, right? Jesus is sovereign over all of creation. He is executing judgment and ruling over the nations. And that includes ruling over the markets, but Jesus is over all things. There's no chance. There's no invisible hand. It's Jesus, Okay. And, of course, the government has a responsibility given to it by God to execute justice. And that means the government must engage with the economy. But in what manner? Stop injustice. Stop theft. Right? Stop partiality. Unjust partiality in the, in the economy. Our government is not engaged in stopping theft and promoting private property. Our government is the predominant thief. Our government is the number one oppressor of people. You know, governments have always been the number one oppressor of people. All right, so a few things with the free market. When the government confiscates the means of production, right, 40 to 50% of your income, and confiscates property, and then orders price controls, wage controls, rationing policies, heavy regulations, tells you you have to pay your people this much unless they're migrant workers, then you can get away with paying them way less as long as we sign off on it. We could go on for days and days the ways they have their hands in the cookie jar. But when you tell someone, no, that's not your money, it's technically mine, you have to pay this much to these people. Which people? No, these in particular. This is the government engaged in theft and partiality. Right. Pushback, 
Do you see the, the consequence or the deductions that I'm making here? How we, how we come to these particular things? All of these um, evil intrusions of the government into our economy and into our personal financial lives are violating two basic biblical principles. No stealing, no partiality. So uh, there will be, in the coming months, much discussion over the minimum wage laws. Do you all know about the new minimum wage laws? Um, what is the new proposal? $15 an hour. That doesn't apply to migrant workers, but that's another subject. Um, it applies to certain people, especially small businesses. Right. Um, there's going to be a lot of discussion of this. And there's going to be a lot of solid Christians who are going to say, well, we shouldn't do this because of this principle and that principle. And they're going to look at various you know, teachers throughout all of history. And you know, they're going to say, well, if we do this, it's going to affect these people in this way. There's going to be a lot of pragmatic reasoning. That's fine. There's going to be a lot of scientific reasoning. That's fine. There's going to be a lot of projections as to the way this is going to affect the economy and the way it's going to affect the poor, and et cetera, et cetera. That's all fine. But at the, at the, bottom, at the bottom line, as far as a biblical preacher... Where I begin is, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not have partiality. Let's start there, okay? Then we can say, well, I don't believe we should have a minimum wage law, or we should have a minimum wage law because of this, this, and this. First of all, you don't get to take someone's property and tell them how they should spend it and to whom they should give it to. All right? And the minimum wage laws, along with almost all of our economic policies, are engaged in theft and Economic partiality. partiality, And I do not believe that that, all I know, that that strategy will not lead to societal flourishing. It will not lead to what's best for mankind. Rather, trusting in God's way, following the Ten Commandments, among others, is the best way for a society to flourish. Okay, so that's the basics. The state should rather enforce contracts, which the state does to some degree, okay? Punish evil. Right, Matthew 20, 1 through 15, the, the, um, the owner has the right to pay as much as is agreed upon by the contracts, freely entered into without coercion. Do you all know the parable? He hires some workers for a certain wage. Other people come later. At the end of the day, he doesn't pay everyone exactly the same. And what does he say? Isn't it my money to do with as I please? Right? We have, you know, a basic principle there and a pretty closely related to how one might pay someone who's working for them. All right. In this particular parable, the worker complains about his wages. Hey, that's not equitable. That's not fair. That's not just. And the response, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? And indeed it is. Now, anyway... Moving on. Any last questions about the market? And this is total basics. This is like, you know, the one page of the, of the pamphlet. But any questions, any thoughts? When you engage in politics, you have to have this in your mind. You have to be grounded in a biblical worldview. Nobody here should be a one-issue voter. Shame on you if you're a one-issue voter. You need a thoroughly fleshed out worldview and you engage in, in your political actions, you engage in civil discourse, conversations, voting, whatever, with this fully fleshed out worldview that covers all of life in all areas. 
The only Christians who have a one issue, you know, motto, they're, they're just, they're, for lack of a better word, they're ill-equipped. They're not equipped. They're not discipled. The abortion issue, we got that one down. All right, that one's clear. But with every other issue, we need to be well-informed and well-equipped. Amen? So, all right. Moving on to investment. Who here does some investing? Anyone? All right, quite a few of you. Wow, you know, wheeling and dealing. Um, who here gambles with the stock market? Nick? Nicholas? No gambling. No gambling. No gambling. That's good, Nick. Proud of you. When, when are you ready for me to, to hand over some money to you to make me rich? All right. One day. One day is coming. Um, yeah, a lot of us do investing. My wife and I put a portion of our income into long-term balanced mutual fund thingamajing, yeah, portfolio. You can see, I don't, I don't, I trust the experts on that. But we invest, you know, we also invest in real estate and we invest in our children. There's a lot of ways in which you invest. In biblical economics, one of the best ways to invest is charity. That's right. God says if you lend to others not expecting to be paid back, that God will repay you. You see, charity is actually the, the primary means of investing for a Christian in God's economy. Have you all tried that one out yet? Have you tested that market? You should, right? You should. So, but we all are investing. And in fact, the Bible does encourage investing for interest, generally speaking. There's a, a very famous parable. You all know the parable, right? The parable of the talents, or the money bags. He gives to some one, to others five, to others ten. What does he expect them to do with it? Yeah, he says, multiply it, turn a profit. He says, wouldn't you have given it to the, the moneylenders or the bankers and received interest on my money? But instead, what did you do? You buried it. You were afraid I was going to come back at any minute. You're, like, you're sitting there, oh, he's going to come back at any minute, and it's going to be the judgment seat. So because of your fear of the rapture, you never went out and invested. I'm being... A little funny, but I think it's a one-for-one one correlation there. You, 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 lived, you lived in fear of um, my return, and so you buried your money. You didn't invest it, and, you, and now you're judged. And this goes for everything that we're given by the Lord, but it at least applies to the money that we're given. The money that we are given, just like the arms and the legs and the health and the breath, everything that we're given should be used to advance the kingdom of heaven for the kingdom's glory. Amen? Right? It encourages lending for interest. Um, would someone look up Deuteronomy 15.6 for us? Deuteronomy 15.6. And I'm going to look up Exodus 22 for us. Exodus 22.25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. All right, I meant to get to this later, but you're not allowed, or you're not supposed to, according to Old Testament law, charge interest to the poor. All right, we'll talk about that in a second. But Deuteronomy 15, 6. Yeah, for, the, for the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you and shall lend, and shall lend to many nations. But you shall not borrow and you shall not rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Amen. One of the blessings of God's uh, promises is that a nation that turns to him would be the head, not the tail, the lender, not the borrower. You don't apply that to our country. You'll be upset for days. 
All right, the parable of the talents, of course, which we talked about a second ago, and then loans for the poor. I mentioned that. In the scriptures, because of blight or famine or cataclysm, a farmer may lose all of his crops. If you lose all your crops, that means you lose your seed grain for the next year, and you could enter into multi-generational poverty. And so one of those safety nets of society was that others would lend to you, interest-free, what you needed to get back on your feet. Usually this involves um, lending the seed grain for the next harvest. And then when you got your harvest, you pay them back. That was the social security net that encouraged brotherliness and neighborliness. And I think there's principles we need to pull out of there and apply to our lives together as a church. Make sense? All right. You were not allowed when your brother or sister fell on hard times to seize upon that moment to build your um, you know, life and to make yourself rich. Aha, he's, he's destitute. The locust just wiped him out. He's starving to death. Okay, I'll give you food in exchange for your title, in exchange for your fields. That was expressly forbidden. Right? Now, there were times when that person was so hungry and could not get back on his feet that he would offer himself up as an employee, a bond slave, When you look in the Bible, I do believe, and this is debated, but when you look in the Bible about purchasing slaves, I do believe without exception, it's purchasing those people who are offering themselves up as bondservants because they're destitute. They're like, I'll I'll go, I'll work for you if you will take care of me, feed me, clothe me, let me have some of your margins, and I'll work for you for a contracted period of time. If you're an Israelite that was only for six years... On the Sabbath year, you were to be released. And if you were not an Israelite, if you were a pagan, that could be only for 49 years. It it was not generational because on the year of Jubilee, everyone is set free. So I do do believe there's the God's law and God's um, law in the Old Testament. It had had a whole social security network. There's a lot of principles we can pull out of there. We've got to pull them out. I mean, you can't possibly apply these things directly. We live in a totally different world. None of us are grain farmers, but we have to pull the principles out of that as best as we possibly can. And so what that means is if one of us is destitute and, and in a, the, the rest of us shouldn't, uh, like vultures, come around and try to uh, you know, finish you off. Rather, we should be doing whatever we can to get you back on your feet so that you, know, you can have an encore. Does that make sense? So anyway... Uh, Nick, were you going to say something? Yes. So is it like a general rule to live by that you don't lend money at interest if it's going to be onerous for the person? As a general rule, you, you don't want to enslave people. Yes. Um, now, there's some debate about this. Um, but as it, what we're going to get to in a second, as a general rule, the poor shouldn't be given high interest rates. Interestingly enough, our nation does it backwards. Yep. Right? Um, so anyway, Pastor Joe? Payday loans. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. All right. So what about loans for fellow church members? This is tricky. There's a lot to talk about here. Contracts, good communication, mediation with wise counselors, right? Open, transparent, etc. But as a general rule, you want to try to avoid this. But, but, if you can't, but if it's going to be something where you come together and as a team, 
you are advancing something, innovating, building a business, I think that should be encouraged, right? But you need to make sure you have good contracts, open and transparent. But, but loaning to someone who's broke poor, hey, just, just give them the money, right? And if you're going to loan it to them, that's fine, but don't charge interest and make sure it's short term. We do not want to enslave our brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So maybe this is never going to apply to you, but you know, maybe it will, right? I know that some of you enter into contracts with other Christians to innovate and to build businesses. That's great. You need to do that, but just make sure you are wise when you go about it, all right? And you know what our nation is up to? You know, almost without exception, the poor get hammered with high interest rates. Now, here's the thing. The poor is one thing, but the poor who have stolen a lot of money from people they've borrowed from in the past and therefore have terrible interest rates are high risks. And so you can't loan to them, you know, and that's kind of part of the problem. So this is a comprehensive problem that even the poor need to repent of as well. All right, moving on. Christians must be informed of Jesus's teachings regarding economics. His words should direct our civil and our financial engagements. I want between now and the next election day for Christ Church to be fully equipped with a fully fleshed out biblical worldview as it pertains to all the things we vote about, all the things the civil government is engaged in, so that we can be strong and unified. Um, liberation theologians, don't, you don't need to know that word, but leftists, Christian liberals, they say we offer to you the world what the Bible has to say. They pick and they choose, and they dismantle and deconstruct the text. We need to be able to offer what the Bible has to say. There's many Christians who say the Bible doesn't have anything to say about economics or the civil authorities. You don't take the Bible with you into the voting booth. No. Uh, there, there's other Christians who say the, the, um, you know, um, the, the Bible is only about civil issues or poverty relief. That it has nothing to do with the spiritual realm. Forget, that's ridiculous. These are half-truths. What we're saying is all of Christ and all of life. And um, that means we need to be thoroughly equipped. This is, not, this is not going to be easy. It's going to take you faithfully studying, faithfully listening, faithfully attending, you know, as you all are. I'm preaching to the choir. All right. One more topic. Doing business and doing good with believers. Who are we to do good to? The Apostle Paul, Book of Galatians. Do good to all men, but... Especially the household of faith. That's right, which is another word for the church. Okay? Your church members. How do we do good, though? Many people think of Christian service or Christian ministry or doing good or doing good works as like spiritual things or maybe just giving money. But the primary way in which we serve and do good is eight to five, Monday through Saturday. That's the primary way in which we serve and do good. Our vocations, our callings, our day-to-day work. That's your ministry. That's your service. That's your good works that were ordained for you to walk in before the foundation of the world. So when we talk about doing good for our fellow believers, we're not just talking about charity. We're not just talking about helping them if they fall into poverty. Yes, of course that. I'm talking way bigger than that. I'm talking about doing business with them, right? Mobilizing them, empowering them, equipping them. 
using your connections and your wealth as leverage to enable them. These are things we should be about. And I put this on uh, Facebook, so you might have read it already, unless you block me. Um, (laughs) If you're going to hire someone, you know, general counsel here, try to hire someone from your church. Now, you may not be able to. We don't have any plumbers in our church that I'm aware of. So you're out of luck with that one. But we need a plumber. Purchase their products and hire their services. We're quick to build up our hometowns by shopping local. Gag me. Shop local. Which you know is another word for saying eat out. Okay? Eat out. Of course you eat local. No one drives to Dallas for dinner. Right? (laughs) So it's like a way to eat out at a restaurant and virtue signal. Um, right. You can't order lunch from what? Amazon. Not yet. Not yet. Blake's working on that. Blake's working on that. <laughs> All right. We are quick to build up our hometowns by shopping local or hiring local. How much more should we build up our local church? We show our appreciation. And then I go to another subject here. We show our appreciation for the other people in our church's ministry by paying them for their ministry with ministry certificates, also called dollars, right? They are ministry certificates. They are service certificates that we give in exchange for service or products. And we are to give them, according to the Bible, justly, you know, follow your contracts, do what you said you were going to do, and promptly, owe, no, owe nothing to anyone, pay your debts quickly, right? Shop, there's, you know, shop local, it's our new hashtag, Shop Local Church. So I need one of you to start a gas station with boudin, chicken tenders, meat pies. You'll, you'll do well just off of my family. Like, right? Wait, what? You need a comic book store, Pastor Joe? Look, let's get it all out there. What do we need? What do we need? All right. That L.A. church community. All right. Here's some caveats, though. Here's some caveats, because there are some people in a church who hear this, and they're like, yeah, more leads, um, <laughs> more suckers. Um, then they'll be calling you up, hey, um, uh, Pastor Brandon, hey, what's going on? Um, ever heard of Primerica? <laughs> I will hang up on you, and I won't care. I won't care. Right? No, we have to make sure we follow some. There's certain caveats that need to be considered when we say this. What I just said does not justify all manner of behavior. Now we have to hire the uh, lazy doofus in the church just because he became a Christian two weeks ago. No, no, we don't. Okay? And now I have to pay double because of Mr., you know, my brother in Christ who's guilt tripping me. to pay him double for slipshod work, right? No, none of that. Like, but then now you're going to have to have a backbone here. You're going to have to, when someone gives it to you, you're going to have to be ready to give it back to them. You know, if somebody wants to guilt trip you or shame you or manipulate you, you need to be ready to say, no, no, indeed. You need to check that attitude. Quit talking to those ladies on those little walks, all right? That's a bad attitude. You know, we need to set this record straight, okay? I know how things go. <laughs> But what if the Christian does 
What if the Christian does slipshod work or demands payment higher than the market rate? All right. And then they use social pressure to guilt you into hiring them. Do what? You, you can tell them no. Yeah. If you need mediation, we'll get to that in a second. If you need mediation, that's what the church is for. But don't be a, um, a sucker. Yeah, well, and I'm going to get to that too. But listen, it's so hard not to give in to guilt and to shame. But you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ given to you. Don't let people guilt trip you. If you didn't do anything wrong to them, you didn't do anything wrong to them. If they are hurt, that doesn't mean you've hurt them. Right? Our world uses victimization as leverage. Our world uses um, their, their spot on the intersectionality chart as leverage and, and you know, political weaponry. Don't fall for any of this. You don't feel guilted or shamed by anyone. All right? and even people in the church, they don't need to be hired. They need to be rebuked for their bad behavior. Okay? And, and you as a Christian, especially if you, if you offer a product or you offer a service, you need to consider that the other brothers and sisters in your Christ have a lot of extenuating circumstances in their life. You know what I mean by that? There, there is a, when, when you go to make a decision, no one makes a decision in a vacuum. Every decision has restraints and pressures and, and various circumstance, circumstances you know, applying pressure to that decision. You see what I mean? And it's impossible for any one of us to know another one of us full circumstance. So when someone makes a decision, it's like, they didn't hire me or they didn't purchase my product. I'm hurt. Well, now you need to consider there's a lot going on here. You understand? There's a lot of extenuating circumstances, a lot of factors, a lot of restraints so you have to trust them, think the best of them, and say, hey, they must have had a good reason. I'm sure there was, you know, that's fine. Okay? That's the, you give the benefit of the doubt. Love is gullible like that. Love just gives the benefit of the doubt, and you move on. And knowing that your paycheck is provided by God. Your paycheck comes from heaven. That's right. Yeah, you don't have to freak. You don't have to lash out. Your paycheck comes from heaven. Amen? Amen. It comes from my hard work. No, it doesn't. It comes through your hard work. But it comes from heaven. And he doesn't have to give it to you through hard work. He can give it to you in the mailbox. We're probably going to get some checks soon here. (laughs) That's a different God, though, isn't it? All right. Do not expect favors and deals from your brother. Brother, I need a favor. I need a deal. All right. We have no right to use our Christianity to demand others to sacrifice. Now, if they ask you, Hey, you can say no. That's fine. And, and it's not wrong to ask necessarily, but that's why I use the word expect. You understand what I mean? So you say, hey, I need help with this, but no pressure. I say that a lot because people, if I just send them a message, they feel pressure. So I just say, <laughs> no pressure. It's just a thought, okay? Can you help with this? No pressure, right? <laughs> so don't expect, don't demand don't use your status as a Christian as leverage. It's okay to ask, but it's also okay to say, I can't. I want to, but I can't. I think one of the things that, uh, and I don't have this in the notes, but one of the things the church can be is a great incubator for um, products and services. 
There's a lot of people who have great and wonderful businesses here that came off the launching pad of the church. They began, and all their clients were from the church. All their connections, all their leads, all their um, you know, first experiences were at the church. And it's from the church that they launched, okay? Now, just remember this. You know how when the rocket ship launches, eventually it detaches and sends what it doesn't need back down to earth. Don't do that to the church, all right? If the church got you where you are, don't forget that. You know, don't forget where you come from, right? Um, if, if you started off your first year entry level and your only clients were church folk, don't forget that when you're, you know, just a big shot. And then now you're charging 8000 an hour and none of your Christian brothers and sisters can even afford you, all right? Don't forget that, okay? You see what I'm saying? No expectations, no laws, but just... We just have to remember where we come from, too. So we have no right to use our Christianity to demand others to sacrifice, right? We should be looking to do favors, not constantly trying to get favors. You should be looking out for the good of others more than yourself. Amen? All right. Nothing grosser than a slick businessman propping up Jesus as a selling point. I know I cost twice as much, but brother, I'm a Christian, Say, okay, well, you, not, you might need to work on your efficiency, or you might need to work on, you know, your rate, because I can't even afford you. I'm, no, no, you know, no ill will, but I can't. can't afford it. All right. Anyway, baptism does not a Christian business make. Christ, a Christian businessman makes. Just because you're circumcised or baptized or have some other religious ritual attached to you doesn't mean anything. Just because you have a fish on your bumper doesn't make you a Christian businessman. All right? You still got to do the right thing. All right, have openly discussed, plainly written contracts as well. God writes contracts. God is holy. There's nothing unspiritual about it. Amen? You say, well, we don't need contracts. We've known each other forever. We love each other. We trust each other. Yes, but the problem is you're in two different households. And because you're in two different households, you're going to face the world in two distinct ways. When bad things happen, disease God forbid, divorce, let's just not even let that be a named among us, but disease, danger, uh, fear, uh, when crazy life things like that happen, that's when the relationships have tension applied to them. That's when you have to make sure you have been in a good covenant, a good contract. Because when that tension is applied, temptation rises, and even the best of Christians can break their contracts at that point. Make sure you have good, solid You'll be surprised. You enter into a verbal agreement. Two years later, pressures rise. You're like, hey, I thought, I thought you paid 40%. No, no, I said 30. No, it was 40. I'm pretty sure it was 40. <laughs> oh, man. And then, then they use guilt to manipulate. Who's been in a relationship like that? Or that's happened to them. Don't raise your hand. But good contracts. Uh, Pastor Scott? Put it in writing. I had um, uh, Jeremy LaBeouf um, remodel my kitchen. Beautiful, beautiful work. Great craftsman, by the way. He's a member of our church. And uh, but, but before we did that, pastor, member, okay, we, we wrote out a contract. We agreed on it. We both signed, right? It was a great experience. And whenever my wife had more ideas, um, I'm teasing. <laughs> I had to tell her. I said, no, Emily, that's not in the contract. That's not in the contract. 
And when I, whenever, or whenever I had more ideas, I'd say, Jeremy, look, I know this isn't in the contract. Let's do an, alter, let's do a, an addendum, right? Let's write this down. Let's make sure we keep short accounts. Because what a lot, of, a lot of people do is they'll hire someone, enter into a contract, and then every time the person shows up for work, oh, could you do this one other thing? Oh, my dog just got out in the neighborhood. Could you run out there and, and grab it? Like, you have to make sure you stick to those contracts. You don't expect time and money from your brothers and sisters in Christ, all right? All right, we're trying to do good, not, you know, have good just done to us. Amen. If you have a disagreement, if there's a breakdown in this, then, hey, if you need to, talk to your church. That's why we have an elder board of of qualified men who have uh, managed their own households well. You have pastors. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1, Paul rebukes the church. Say, can't you deal with your own problems? Why do you keep going to pagan law courts? You're suing each other and making an embarrassment out of yourselves in front of the pagans. Can't you... Deal with this yourselves. You're going to be judging angels, he says. Can you not deal with these simple little things? And indeed, I think at Christ Church, there are men who could read a contract and say who's right and who's wrong and what we need to do about this. Not everyone here is capable of reading. Not everyone here has high literal, literary functioning. Not everyone here is reasons well. Not everybody is in that particular field. You understand what I mean? Not everyone deals with words and contracts, but we have lawyers among us who can read, right? And they can read contracts, and they know what is legal and what is just. And we have biblical scholars here at our church. We have wise men who could look at a situation and make a a judgment call, and then the people in the two say, you know what? I'm going to stick by that. I trust my pastors. Let's reconcile. Let's pay restitution if necessary. And let's move forward in peace as brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to split the church over this fight. Amen? I mean, that's, that's the ideal. That's where we got to get. All right. Um, any final closing thoughts?